All right, well, in the, in the late 1950s, uh, a physician and uh, the head of medicine at the University of Oklahoma, a doctor by the name of Dr. Stuart Wolf, uh, came across a profound discovery, an unexpected discovery, in the small rural village of Rosetto, Pennsylvania, which is still uh, quaintly located uh, just 90 miles west of New York City. Uh, Dr. Wolf had been brought in to give a talk at, at a local medical society there. And after he gave his talk, uh, one of the local doctors invited him to go for a drink. And uh, during the course of their conversation, almost in a, in a passing comment, the local doctor, uh, he shared how throughout his 17-year practice, he rarely found anyone from Rosetto under the age of 65 with heart disease. Now, instantly, Dr. Wolf, he was, he was taken aback because uh, this was the 1950s when heart disease and heart attacks were an epidemic in the United States. And they were the leading cause of death in men under the age 65. But in Rosetto, there were nearly no heart attacks recorded for this otherwise high-risk group of men. And men over 65 in Rosetto, they had a death rate half of the American average. So these were obviously, they were drastic and outlying statistics, especially since they were actually in complete odds to the physical lifestyle habits of this wine-drinking, slate-mining, cigar-smoking, and lard-loving Italian-migrated community. So immediately, uh, Wolf and his team, uh, they decided to set out to figure out what was going on in Rosetto. And they started doing all of these studies. They uh, ran blood tests and did EKGs. Uh, they were conducting interviews, looking at sort of family, family histories. They even did a 50-year comparison study with a neighboring town with the exact same environmental factors. All until they realized not only were there no heart attacks happening in this sort of high-risk population in Rosetto, but there was also no alcoholism. There was no suicides. There was no, no one on welfare. There was very little crime. People didn't even seem to be getting ulcers. Rosettans, it seemed, uh, were simply dying of old age, and that was it. Now, after numerous attempts at conventional medical explanations, what Wolf and his team began to conclude is that what made Rosettans healthier was the Rosettan community itself, the very people, what one writer about Rosetto described as people simply being nourished by people. And they saw this because they, they looked at how the Rosettans uh, visited one another, how they, they took time in the streets to, to stop and actually talk with one another, actually ask how things are going. They saw how often they, they shared meals with neighborhood barbecues and having people over for dinner in their backyards. They, they uh, counted 22 unique civic organizations, places uh, for people to, to get together and interact in a town of just 2,000 people. And they saw so many homes where up to three generations were living under one roof. And they even noticed how the local church had this calming and unifying effect on the entire community. Dr. Wolf was quoted as saying, the community was very cohesive. There was no keeping up with the Joneses. Houses were very close together and everyone lived more or less alike. You see, Rosetto was better because the lives of the Rosettans were lived together. Now, this kind of picture and experience of relationship, uh, this is what we want to talk about as we kick off this series. We kick off kind of this, this new year together. And this, this example of relationship, it's something that we often describe around here as a lifestyle of connection. 
And hearing that story, it kind of makes you wonder, you know, what if we could recover some of that beauty and vitality of community and relationship that was, that was found in Rosetto, Pennsylvania. And so to start exploring that question, uh, I want to first for a moment uh, actually take a look uh, right at the beginning of the scriptures to kind of explore it from uh, God's original design and intention for humanity. And frankly, at the beginning of a new year, looking at the very beginnings, probably a great place for us to start. And so right in the very first uh, book of the Bible, the first chapter of the Bible, in the very first verse, and some of us will be sort of familiar with this poem, in Genesis 1 verse 1, it, it starts this way. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The narration begins with, with God uh, beginning to create everything that has ever existed. And as this chapter unfolds, it, it sort of explodes into this experience of creation where God is speaking everything into existence. From the lights in the sky, to the waters in the sea, to the land and the, the plants and the animals that occupy our planet. And what's so uh, beautiful and fascinating about this uh, narrative and this creation poem, and frankly, what made it different and unique from every other creation myth of its day, what had it, made it set apart is that throughout the entire episode, after each element of creation, God described it as being good. And it all culminates in the, the final verse of chapter 1 in verse 31, where after God creates the very first individual human being, he emphatically says that it was very good. And this refrain of uh, good and very good that we see in that first chapter of, of Scripture, what's interesting is the good and very good, they all uh, happen a total of seven times. And uh, in the ancient uh, Jewish tradition— uh, the number seven actually represented uh, perfection. And so it's, it's as though everything God created in that first chapter, when we get to that point, uh, it was now whole and complete. But what's kind of interesting uh, in this story, and where we begin to see, even in the scriptures, a, a connection to sort of that unique and outlying discovery about our relationships in Rosetto, Pennsylvania, is that when you turn just one page, and you turn to chapter two, where the creation narrative uh, keeps going, is that what we find is a startling discovery is that very good or even near perfection, it actually wasn't quite good enough. It wasn't best or better enough, according to the creator, due to one missing ingredient. And what we see in the second chapter in uh, verses 15 to 18, this comes from a different translation. It says, the Lord God took the human settled him into the garden of Eden to farm it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the human, eat your fill from all of the garden's trees, but just don't eat from the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil because on the day you eat from that tree, you will die. Then the Lord God said, and this is what's key for us this morning and in this series, the Lord God said, it's not good that the human is alone. It's not good that the human is alone. After declaring seven times in that first chapter that all was good or even very good. And in that first human being inhabiting the, the freshness and the pureness of God's creation, surrounded by abundance and opportunity with just enough, enough parameters to sort of protect him and, and keep him uh, well and safe. God looked on and saw the human facing the abundance and opportunity by himself and said, this isn't good. This aloneness, this isn't how it's meant to be. 
this uh, work of creation and transformation, it can't be done yet because no one can thrive, let alone survive, if alone is all they know. And the verses that follow in that second chapter, as the creation narrative kind of completes itself, we see God create uh, a mate, a suitable partner, a companion, so that we as human beings could, could live together and actually experience the full goodness of creation, the better together life that God always intended. And, and not just in, in marriage, in the way that passage is often referenced, it, it certainly includes marriage, but even broader in inter personal interconnected relationships. At the end of the day, what we see uh, all the way from the Garden of Eden to Rosetto, Pennsylvania, is that we're not meant to live alone because we're better together. We're not meant to live alone because we're better together. That's the big idea this morning. That's the big idea throughout this series. But it makes you think, you hear uh, these stories And you got to ask the question, uh, so what about our lives today? You know, what about uh, our relationships? What about your relationships? How about your sense of togetherness? And what I want us to kind of reflect on throughout this conversation is uh, where on the spectrum do you find yourself from the not goodness of facing much of life alone uh, to the off the chart sense of togetherness that we, we could see and believe is possible? From the not goodness of, of uh, living in isolation to the experience of people being nourished by people. And my suspicion, uh, and if you're kind of anything like me and some of my experience in this day and age, is that uh, we probably actually experience and live out uh, more aloneness than maybe even we sometimes realize or certainly uh, more than we would prefer. And it's kind of a, a wild thing to think that uh, on the, at the beginning of the year 2020, you know, in this third decade of the 21st century, uh, what some might describe or one day sort of look back on as the, the age of connection, so to speak. You know, if you think about, you know, from the internet uh, to the iPhone to our ability to travel or uh, interact on social media, our world has gotten smaller. Our connections have become uh, more immediate. And you would think that we'd be living the better together life more than ever. But what's troubling is that when you actually look at the, the stats and the stories that, that kind of come out of or are retrieved out of our day and age, out of our culture, uh, that's not what you see. Fr- frankly, it's quite the inverse. Um, so a few studies I've looked at on loneliness and relationships, and, and most of this data, it kind of comes out of American studies. Uh, that's kind of seemed what's more accessible. So I know we're different than Americans. You know, we're not the exact same. Um, but I, I think on this dimension, uh, given sort of our Western way of being, hopefully, hopefully it relates. So bear with the fact that they're a bit American. But uh, a few uh, points here for us. First, that the number of Americans who say they have no close friends Uh, roughly tripled from 1985 to 2004. Over that 20-year period, uh, the number of Americans that would say they have no close friends tripled. And that that stat's kind of already old. We're 16 years later. I can only imagine that it's extrapolated from there. Another one, zero is the most common response when people are asked how many confidants they have. You know, whether they have people that they can confide in, that they can trust no matter what, they can really go there with. Zero is the most common answer. 
Nearly half of Americans report sometimes are always feeling alone or left out. I wonder if even in a room uh, this size that, that maybe up to half of us could feel that here. That 40% of Americans sometimes or always feel that their relationships are not meaningful or that they're somehow isolated from others. And finally, only half of Americans would say they have meaningful social interactions on a daily basis. That only half of the people uh, in a society like ours would say on a daily basis they actually have a meaningful sort of relational and social interaction. Now to take it a little bit deeper, uh, I read this book uh, recently and found it quite illuminating about sort of where our culture's at and how it's affecting us and our relationships. It's called uh, Selfie, and the subtitle is How We Became So Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us. Basically, some of the ways that we are not living the better together way of life. And in this book, uh, the author, and he's a journalist, Will Storr, he basically uh, takes us on the journey all the way from ancient Greece to today of our society's increasing focus on the self. And ultimately, he shows how it's dramatically and statistically contributing to the highest levels of anxiety and loneliness ever recorded. Now, as an aside, kind of not surprisingly, sort of the, the emblem or the icon of the selfie uh, generation is, is the selfie photo, right? We're all uh, familiar uh, with the selfie photo. And uh, I won't ask us to do a show of hands of how many of us kind of are, are regular uh, selfie takers in one way or another. Uh, but here's the thing. According to the data, almost all of us are, or at least we are all being impacted by what the selfie uh, represents, I don't know if you know, in, in the book, uh, Storr tells the story of when the, the first front-facing camera on an iPhone was, was released. And he talks about what the sort of the original uh, intention for it was. I don't know how many of us uh, feel like we know what the sort of the original single sole purpose uh, was. You could shout it out in your location if you think you know. Uh, it was actually not to take selfies. Uh, the Apple innovators didn't even have that on the radar until we, the people, sort of surprised them with this new innovation of ways we could continue to kind of focus and share self uh, so broadly. And according to the data, uh, by 2014, and this, this number I can kind of hardly believe myself, but apparently someone counted, and this is, this is the stats, that by 2014, uh, 93 billion selfies were being taken every day on Android phones alone. Startling, startling number. And whether sort of you were part of that number or, or not, uh, that adds up to an average of 12 selfies per day for every human being on the planet. And here's the thing. Not that selfies in and of themselves are, are inherently good or bad, but as you'd expect, according to Store, in sort of this more self-focused culture, this selfie generation and the, the loss of togetherness, it's taking an enormous toll on the life, health, and relationships of the selfie generation, of the age demographic of which I, I'm a part of, maybe on the, the older end, but what's described as the millennial generation. A few stats he cites uh, specific to millennials, that 40% of young people describe themselves as worn down with 38% of young women and 29% of young men worried about their mental health. A study showed that today's college students are 40% are less empathetic than students in the 1980s. That, that they've kind of measured that young people today are, have, a, have a more difficult time grasping the, the actual felt needs of the people 
closest to them. And this last one, it's a bit of a a generational comparison. It says only 19% of millennials believe most people can be trusted compared with 40% of boomers. Interesting sort of relational stat. And uh, I won't comment on uh, who is better off based on those stats, who's right or wrong, or kind of who's to blame. And frankly, uh, for your millennials out there, if you don't trust me on any of these stats, I will not blame you. Uh, We will simply blame the front-facing cameras that were thrust upon us. But kind of beyond the the stats and whatnot, um, I'd invite you just for a moment to think about kind of your own experience your own sense of connection or disconnection or togetherness in this day and age, what you observe, the stories uh, you have heard in our culture. And I know for me, I've, I've heard people tell stories, again, looking back a little bit of maybe even the difference uh, in visible relational engagement, say, you know, 50 years ago to compared to today, where people would say, you know, 50 years ago, if you went outdoors uh, in a neighborhood or a community square, sort of on a, on a pleasant evening, um, You know, even in in our neighborhoods, you'd see the streets kind of filled with people and people engaging and interacting um, in sort of flesh and blood relationship in a way that you you don't quite see in the same way today. And it kind of made sense because people were your source of entertainment, of current events, of, of news, of what was going on. Being with people was where it made sense to be. I remember when I was confronted with uh, this kind of contrast from what we usually see and experience kind of navigating, you know, our society when I traveled to Uganda a few years ago. You know, a country that um, people might describe as being less developed, but to see the richness, the visible and vast richness of the relationships kind of at play in the streets, intercommunally, intergenerationally, people on porches, people caring for each other's kids, doing business together, going to school together, just more visible and active and obvious. And I think we miss out on some of that today, uh, largely because of many of the technological advancements that have sort of changed the landscape for us. You know, think about how uh, technology has affected the degree to which you relate to or interact with other people. Maybe even some of the ones that aren't always as obvious. Think about something like uh, the invention of air conditioning. I know not so relevant kind of in, the, in the, the midst of January. We have no choice really but to, to hibernate on most days. But you think about how climate control has actually made us uh, more comfortable kind of just tucking away inside in our own environment. You know, and then we, we come up with things like the automatic garage door opener, which allows us to go uh, from the street to the driveway, sort of straight into the garage and then into the house, avoiding the risk of, you know, potentially bumping into our neighbors. And then uh, inside the home, you know, first is, it was the radio, then the TV, then cable channel selections, then Netflix and YouTube, video games, all of these things bringing all of the sort of the real time latest and greatest entertainment and humor and drama uh, and interest right to our fingertips with constant stimulus telling us the story that we actually don't need to Uh, engage with other people uh, to find fulfillment. Think about ways this actually plays out in your life, in your living room. We're talking about relationships more broadly, but maybe think of our most sort of intimate kinds of relationships. And I think in some cases, you know, people's experience is that the bachelor in paradise uh, becomes a little more interesting and entertaining than the hubby on the couch in sweatpants, right? If you catch my drift. And then uh, there's 
this. You know, the, the smartphone revolution and uh, the power and potential that exists here for uh, entertainment, infotainment, uh, productivity, calendars, emails, constant notifications. You know, people could not have dreamt of this only a few decades ago. And now these devices, they, they live deep in our pockets, perpetually attached to our hips. We, we walk around with them, making us only ever one buzz or notification or the buzz we just think we got away from disconnecting us from the world that's in front of us, from the people at times that are right in front of us. And in my experience, because I know this has affected me and it affects my relational dynamics, it seems like it's all adding up to making us kind of too busy, too distracted, too pulled in different directions. And we're, we're missing out on those relationships that God always intended. And what's heartbreaking uh, is that it's actually creating an, an epidemic, what you might even consider as or more severe than the epidemic of heart disease in the 1950s. We're living in an epidemic of loneliness, isolation, of insulation, of anxiety, and depression. I think the story of, of Genesis, it tells the truth when it says it's not good for the human to be alone. And sadly, uh, too many of us know that truth from our own personal experience. So what do we uh, do with all of this? Is it it's all just bad news of what you might be feeling right now. Well, here, here's the thing. I think that the good news is, is that we believe that the genuine relationship is still possible. That reclaiming, especially in those areas of, areas of our lives where we've, we've sensed this, this uh, reduction or loss of togetherness, we believe it can be reclaimed, it can be rediscovered, and that it is actually found through the Jesus way of relating. And that's what the rest of this series is, is going to be all about. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at uh, three Jesus stories and three uh, sort of Jesus relationship practices, three habits or dynamics of relating that we see in the life of Jesus and we believe can contribute to us reclaiming this better together life in our own lives as well. And there are three uh, simple ideas, not easy necessarily to live out, but we're describing them these days as simply as eating together, as praying together, and as loving together. That's kind of our, our vision and heartbeat for relating. Eating together, praying together, and loving together. And what we mean uh, by eating together, we, we don't simply just mean uh, consuming and digesting food sort of in the presence of other people, although uh, we do think there's something about the magic of, of sharing a meal. But even more broadly, when we say eating together, we mean kind of like the, the, the time and intentionality it takes to prepare a meal and then to sit down and, and enjoy it. It means carving out the time and the space and the energy in our lives and our calendars to make space for relationship. To actually invest in building and maintaining and cultivating a friendship. And to actually uh, find enjoyment and enjoying the gifts of life with the flesh and blood gifts that God has given us in each other. And by praying together, uh, we don't uh, just mean sort of closing our eyes, folding our hands, and, and saying prayers kind of in proximity to, to others. Again, there's value in that. That's part of the picture. 
But even more than that, what we mean is, is being vulnerable enough to get below the surface of kind of our most common everyday conversations, to have a different kind of conversation, to be willing to consider so sort of the things that matter most, the spiritual dimensions of our lives and engage in friendships that could form our faith. And by loving together, we mean being in a close enough proximity to others to be close enough and to care enough to know what's going on and then be available to provide practical support to our circle when we need it most. And then as a circle, to work together to uh, extend God's love to those who are most in need. This is the way of relating, the Jesus way of relating that we want to live into this month. And it's not uh, reserved for the Garden of Eden. Not even just for those unique stories of a place like Rosetto, Pennsylvania. We believe it's for anyone who wants to follow Jesus and seek to put his ways into practice, to emulate his way of relating in the world. And we believe that it's for a faith community, for a church community in any day and age. And that means we believe it's for us. The Apostle Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, he wrote to the, the church in his day, about something that I think we can also reclaim in our day. And he talked about the church as uh, kind of like a body. Described it as the body of Christ or the representation of Jesus on earth. This interdependent and interconnected network that, that absolutely needs each other. That can't kind of function or operate at all without each other. And the, uh, the summary verse uh, in this passage in 1 Corinthians 12, it comes in verse 12 where he writes, uh, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. This is kind of this beautiful poetic metaphor. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. So it is when we put Jesus at the center of our relationships and how we want to relate. It's like an eye not being able to say to a hand, I don't need you. Or a head not being able to say to the feet, I don't need you. It's how we as a community need each other and we need to turn the tide of living our lives as separate selves from one another. So with all that in mind, uh, what's the, the so what for this morning? What's the do differently uh, today? Something that we can kind of take th this afternoon or into Monday morning. Um, the beginning of the series, I want to give you uh, two things as kind of our, our homework or our action steps. The first is to simply start by uh, sort of extending your New Year's reflection to take stock of the degree to which you're experiencing you know, some amount of aloneness in your life, going it alone, versus this together, sort of better together way of life. You know, to assess your individualistic habits or your, your togetherness habits. Where are you strong and can you share more togetherness with others or, or where are you struggling and, and you need to grow? And we're going to provide you with a, a really practical tool to kind of help start that even this morning uh, and into your experience this week. You'll hear about, more about that uh, when I'm finished. And then secondly, uh, I invite you to commit to participating uh, intentionally in the rest of this series. To be around here in the next three weeks as we talk about uh, eating together, praying together, and loving together. How we see that in the life of Jesus and how we want to emu emulate that in our own lives. And really lean in to consider how you can be growing in that 
And if you're in a life group, to, t- to take the conversation uh, seriously. We've actually produced a, a particular a video life group curriculum to support our groups in this series. So dive into the conversation and consider how you can grow in expressing this and experiencing this uh, in your groups. Because this is uh, the life that we believe God has always intended. This is the life we believe is possible this is a, a countercultural way of being in a, in a culture that, that we're creating that has us keep focusing on ourselves to actually focus on being better together. And as I, I wrap up, uh, just to give you uh, one glimpse of the way uh, I've seen this recently in our community. It's happening in all kinds of avenues within our, in our community, but uh, one unexpected glimpse I got recently um, it happened five weeks ago on a Sunday, December 1st, when uh, we actually experienced what can be the uh, sort of worst winter nightmare of, of every church leader. That's when we had to uh, cancel our, our Sunday services due to the pending ice storm. Kind of a bummer. Um, for, for some of you, maybe it was the, you woke up to the dream come true, is having a, a Sunday off or whatever. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, we had to cancel services. We couldn't, couldn't really get here. And uh, at least in my location, are normally busy and buzzing spaces of uh, the lobby and auditorium. They looked like this. Got just a couple of photos. You know, normally we're buzzing about and people are gathering there in the lobby, but it was just empty. The auditorium as well, you know, our normal activities, they just couldn't happen. It was just kind of vacant. But something else uh, happened uh, that morning that uh, couldn't, we couldn't have planned or scripted or expected. And that was uh, when about a dozen or so Uh, members of the body who sort of missed the memo that the service was canceled that morning when they found themselves huddled together over coffee in a circle here in our cafe. And you can see uh, the picture there. It wasn't an eclectic and diverse uh, group of us, probably a sort of a mix you, you wouldn't really find in any other environment. But as we sort of settled in, Got to know each other's names. You know, like I say, poured some cups of coffee. First shared a few nervous laughs about kind of what it took to get there that morning and finding out things were canceled. Then the conversation just started going a little deeper. And we were reflecting on the series we had been in as a community. Uh, some of the things we otherwise would have gotten into in the service that morning. And all of a sudden I kind of stepped back and, and, and noticed that this experience of being better together as a body, an interconnected body, diverse body parts was, was taking place right before my very eyes. And it was seen in the way that uh, Phil's story, a guy who uh, came to faith back in the, the Jesus movement of the 70s and now was just talking about how inspired he was again to be living it out here in our community and experiencing unexpected, unlikely friendships. One of those friendships and his story connected uh, with our friend Norm's story, who you see in the picture there. And Norm is actually a a body part that we uh, sadly lost at Christmas and whose life we celebrated just this week. But we were able to see and enjoy uh, that connection in that moment. And then it was seen uh, fairly subtly, but not insignificantly in the way that uh, Ben's story and contribution, he's one of the electric guitar players in our community, so he helps contribute to musical worship on a regular basis. Uh, They didn't know each other, but how his contribution uh, connected to Michelle's story. Because Michelle, although she was newer to to our community and to, to the faith experience, it was those kinds of environments and moments that were opening her heart up to, to what God had for her 
and allowing her to see how she could contribute as well. And she shared about how she'd recently done that by sharing a roast beef uh, dinner with her life group and was beaming about that. And then it was seen in how uh, Mark's story connected to Perry's, how Perry's story connected to Jeff's, and how Jeff's story, uh, it reminded us, he had recently visited uh, two friends simultaneously in the hospital. One who was celebrating uh, the, uh, the life of a newborn, um, and one who was struggling with, with pretty intense mental health challenges. His story reminded us there are uh, parts of the body who are going through different highs and lows all around us all the time. And as Paul wrote in that passage to the Corinthians, when one part suffers, we all suffer. And when one part rejoices, we all rejoice. And finally, for me, it was seen in the way a longtime member of our community, Jerry Soika, who uh, battles severe MS and and has a difficult time getting uh, to our church facilities in the best of weather. Uh, She'd been able to to get a cab and get there in her wheelchair that morning, only initially to be surprised and disappointed that the services had been canceled. But then after our time together to, to pull me aside and expressed how more surprised and delighted she was by the experience we had had. And I know I had been kind of throughout a little bit bummed that we didn't get to do what we normally would do all together and had planned. When I saw the way Jerry expressed that, hey, maybe we needed this this morning. Maybe this is exactly what we needed. I realized how much I had needed that as well. Through a simple act of of eating together with some coffee, donuts, and sharing a few laughs, by essentially praying together, by getting into a few more of the meaningful things of life, getting below the surface, sharing what was going on in our lives and and how we were seeking to grow in our faith. And finally, by by loving together, by caring about the needs around the circle and and inspiring the entire circle to continue sharing God's love with others. It was just a beautiful, simple, small group picture of the better together life that, that God and Jesus are inviting us into. And so I hope You'll come on the journey. This is what we want for you. This is what we want for our community. This is the way of relating. We want to grow in 2020. Because I know for me, I have a a long way to go. I have plenty of my own individualistic habits and hangups I need to, to grow through. But I have come to firmly believe that life is better together. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have created us to to not have to go it alone. To be able to live life together in relationship and in community, first and foremost with you, um, but not not only with you, also uh, with you and one another, with all the people you have surrounded us with. I pray that you would help us grow uh, out of the the self-orientation that uh, maybe the culture that we, we've, we've been living in or we've created that it's, it's driving us towards and then grow into an interconnected, interdependent, body part way of being with one another to find a healthier, a more whole, a more complete, a more sort of better way of living together. We ask that you lead us in this journey this month and this year. And we trust you and look forward to what you'll do. And we pray all of this in the, the name and the power of Jesus. Amen.